Hey everybody, I'm John Small. And I'm Dan Bova. And from the Entrepreneur Media Podcast Network, this is Dirty Money. Investigators have called it one of the biggest corruption cases ever. You're one of the greatest con men of all time. You're the daddy of them all. But what does it take to be a good con man? I'm not guilty. You're the one who's guilty. Well, hey, Dan Bova. What's up, John Small? And might I also ask, although I know they can't answer, how are you, audience? That good, huh? (laughs) That's so good to hear. So good to hear. You guys are wonderful. We love you. (laughs) No, that actually reminds me. Listen, if you like this show, let us know because we have no idea. We put it out there into this void and we don't really know what you guys think. We see that a lot of people are listening, so that's really exciting and encouraging. But if you like the show, please, you know, put in the comments. Take two seconds, if you could, in the comments to write, you know, a recommendation. I guess if you, only if you like the show. And uh, give us a rating. And this way, other people can discover the show. Yes, please. And if you don't like the show, shut up. Yeah, we don't want to hear Who from you at you? all. Yeah, <laughs> nobody cares. Uh <laughs> How are you, John? I am great. I'm great. I'm just, you know, we're coming on the end of our week here, and that is always, you know, very exciting. It is very exciting, and I hope you're having a better day than this guy that I just read about. Oh, boy. This has nothing to do with financial crime or money, but it's just so dumb that I, I just had to share this. Oh, please do. Uh, so I'm going to start with those magical words, a Florida man. Um, always was arrested this guy named razor ray bellucci i might be saying that wrong but i'll give you a guess why he was arrested uh so he's in florida it can either be he's in florida inhaling bath salts uh that's that's what you would think but it's a little weirder than that he was arrested while trying to run across the atlantic ocean in a makeshift human-sized hamster wheel. <laughs> God. <laughs> the uh, the Coast Guard uh, picked up this guy in his homemade, as he calls it, a hydropod vessel. Uh, he was 70 miles off the coast of Tybee Island in Georgia. He made it pretty far. Yeah. <laughs> The, uh, the the I guess the Coast Guard was uh, in the midst of prep preparing for uh, Hurricane Franklin, and uh, they see this guy <laughs> running on a, a floating hamster wheel, and they're like, "You're gonna die!" <laughs> so they um got you know they might have had more important things to do like preparing for a, a hurricane than yeah yeah but pull a guy off the water for being on a hamster wheel. That's unbelievable. Yeah, and at first I was like, well, I mean, whatever. You're on a hamster if that's his choice. But I guess you need to have a... It, your vehicle needs to be registered. Uh, and when they stopped him, Bellucci was, uh, you know, checking his pockets. Oh, I thought I had it. <laughs> and the, the officers uh, declared the vessel a, quote, manifestly unsafe uh, vessel and his planned voyage. So, uh, and they also, uh, wow, uh, this gets dark oh, no. real quick. Uh, they said, I should have read the whole story. He was armed with a 12 inch knife and threatened to die by suicide. Interesting. Um, and that's why they took him in. Okay. Just turned dark real quick. This was a funny yeah, human story, and suddenly it's a suicide by cop. It's, 
So I hope uh, I hope you're doing okay, Mr. Bellucci, and uh, we're thinking of you. For anyone else thinking about running across, yeah, got to get a license. Got to get a license, to and do that. and you can in L.A. I think there are places where you can get training in a uh, hamster wheel. Oh, oh yeah, right? it's a big thing here. It's a big fitness. You can get a personal hamster wheel uh, yeah. trainer. Yeah, of course, L.A. Oh well, speaking of hamster wheels, <laughs> this is absolutely no seg. <laughs> <laughs> Our episode has nothing to do with hamster wheels, but it does have to do with the most prolific and perhaps greatest art thief of all time. A guy whose name I will now mangle because it's German and I can't speak German. His name is Stefan Breitweiser. And I'm sure that our guest, Michael Finkel, will help us with a pronunciation. But this guy, Stefan, Dan, we didn't know anything about him. And then we found out about this book. No. Which is called The Art Thief. It's just out in stores and it's by our guest, Michael Finkel. And it tells the story of Stefan Breitweiser. And this is a guy that from the years of 1994 to 2001, he just basically tore through Europe, all museums and galleries and, and auction houses, and just embarked on a breathtaking crime spree. And here's the thing. This was no like Ocean's Eleven art spree theft. Like this is this is not sophisticated. This guy often did it in the light of day during business hours, armed with nothing but a Swiss army knife. And yet he stole about 300 works of art, 300 works of art, which wow. total about $1.4 billion. That's incredible. This guy just walked out of museums with tons of art. Now, here's the really strange part. He never stole this art to make a profit. In fact, he just kept all his art and stolen treasures in a pair of secret rooms uh, where he and his girlfriend could just look at the art and admire it for their own personal pleasure. <laughs> so not only is he dirty, but wow. he's dumb. So I mean, this guy could have... Made a fortune on the black market. Wow. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna talk about Stefan uh with our guest, Michael Finkel. Welcome to the show. Hello, good to be here. Great to talk to you, man. Uh teach us how can we become arch art criminals. I mean, do you have your notebook and pen ready? Because I'm <laughs> I, I do. <laughs> yes, well, I'm taking notes. Especially because the way this guy did it sounded e pretty easy, but all you really need is a Swiss Army knife and the most cold-blooded, daring nature, risk-taking uh, persona imaginable times ten. But really, <laughs> it is if you have absolutely no fear of uh, spending the rest of your life in prison, then it's not that hard to steal art. But if you're like almost all of us with a healthy fear of being caught, I don't even like to. I don't even want to take a pack of gum. I'm too afraid of, <laughs> I'm, too afraid of you know, I'm not the most morally upright person that has ever lived. But uh, I mean, it, this wasn't like the thing that I love about Stefan Breitweiser isn't that he had like this Uzi and, you know, he's dropping bombs and frightening everyone. It was literally like this sort of David Blaine street magician sort of wow. right through your nose style uh, that very few of us could ever pull off. Yeah. Well, let's, so it's interesting. Let's, first of all, let's get a little bit of information about the man like who was he what's his background it's sort of an interesting background or he has i'm not talking about him in the past tense he's still with us what is uh, mr breitweiser's background 
Stefan Breitweiser is the born in 1971, alive and well, uh, is the most prolific art thief that has ever lived. So museums have been around for about 250 years since the mid 1700s. And in I spent all of COVID, by the way, doing nothing but reading about art crime. So I'm uh, well versed in this. And the second most prolific art thief that I could find in all of history, this is excluding like the Nazis, war armies, just gangs or single criminals, stole from 19, different museums, which is pretty impressive. Stefan Breitweiser from Alsace, Northeastern France, stole from 201 museums in a 10-year thieving spree that is unequaled in history, starting in the late 90s and ending in the mid-2000s, accompanied by his girlfriend who served as his accomplice. Her name is Anne-Catherine Kleinklaus. So Stefan Breitweiser stole 201 times, 300 pieces, often he stole more than once, worth an estimated two billion dollars and as we alluded to previously it wasn't really the number of pieces that he stole his methods were quite fascinating that he stole during the day often with guards and tourists in the room non-violently in fact he believed in what he called the invisible style of stealing the best way to steal something is not by you know making everyone lie on the floor or tying people's hands behind their back is to do it when nobody knows that it's happening so both those things are pretty interesting the number of thefts and this, but the thing that really brought me into like journalistic nirvana was what he did with the works. And unlike any, almost any other real art thief, not ones in movies or books, but real art thieves, he just hung these $2 billion worth of art in his bedroom to admire. He stole for the love of art. And that really, that combination of the three things, the quantity, the style, and the reason, that's a head blowing, like, don't tell me any journalist wouldn't want to know that. And then of course you have the girlfriend and you got a mother relationship in there. So it's all, that journalist. <laughs> it's all there. Wow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, wow. That's, that, that was, <laughs> I, I mean, this took me 11 years to work, to write this book called The Art Thief. Uh, and I was introduced to this story by reading a small article in a French paper. I read it online. I, I, I speak French and uh, exactly, I had exactly the same reaction. Dan. <laughs> oh, wow. Like what? <laughs> so I guess a big question, John, I'm sure you have this question is why really? He just wanted to look at them, but also I, I mean, I'm intrigued. So he's stealing stuff in broad daylight. The way you describe that, like, what does that actually look like? I, I can't even like picture it. Yeah. Can you give us an example of like one of his thefts? Right. Let's go through. Uh, this is really the time to take notes. Let's go through how Stefan Breitweiser stole things. Now, a couple of bits of background information. Breitweiser, when he was a teenager, senior in high school, worked as a security guard in a local museum in Strasbourg, mm -hmm. France. So he learned firsthand, not just how security systems work in museums, but also the fact that after a couple of days on the job, he realized a guard doesn't really look at the artwork anymore. It sort of fades into the background like wallpaper. And so you're really, you're, you don't notice these details. You start looking at people, you entertain yourself, you look at your phone. Secondly, he worked at a frame shop, ostensibly learning how to put frames on pictures, but really learning how to take them off. It is the frames that make it difficult to steal a painting. Interesting. Uh, another thing I would like to add before we get into exactly how we did it, Breitweiser told me, and we spoke in French, but translating, he said to me that he did not like being called an art thief. 
which is funny because he is fully, fully admitted everything, uh, the most prolific art thief ever. And I said, you know, why do you not like being called an art thief? And he said, well, just name an art criminal to, or a, a, a art crime to me. And now the first things I came up with were things like Ocean's Eleven and the Thomas Crown Affair. That's not real art thieves. That's fiction. So yeah. he said, name me a real art thief. I said, oh, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, famous crime, 1990, still mm -hmm. unsolved, half a billion dollars worth of art stolen. And he said, exactly. It is something like the Isabella Stewart Art Museum crime that is the reason why I hate being called an art thief. Those two guys broke in at night, attacked the night guards, bound their face with uh, duct tape, handcuffed them to pipes in the basement. So already violent crime. That wasn't why Breitweiser hated it. The next thing those two guys did was go to the most magnificent work in the Isabel Stewart Gardner Museum, a Rembrandt seascape, and stuck a knife in the canvas and carved out the canvas from its frame, basically ripped it. And so even if this is ever found, it will never, it is going to be damaged. Not a whole piece of work. Yeah. Likewise, as I mentioned, worked in a frame shop. If he stole something, he would take it off the wall. He would flip it upside down. He would remove the tabs, the nails, the ribbons, whatever was on the back, carefully take it out of the frame, know that a Painting out of its frame is like a newborn baby must be treated very delicately. We would never harm any work of art. And he would hang it carefully in his bedroom, which we'll talk about, where he monitored the humidity and the light. And so I said to him, if you don't want to be called an art thief, what would you like to be called? And he said to me, um, he'd like to be called a collector with an unorthodox acquisition style. That's what he wanted to be called. <laughs> <laughs> nice euphemism. And then you ended up calling your book The Art Thief. So <laughs> you're not going to call it a collector with an honor. That wouldn't fly off the shelf. It doesn't, it doesn't roll off the tongue. The collector. No, no. <laughs> so how did he do this? So I uh, mentioned that he was often accompanied, like 80% of his crimes were accompanied by his girlfriend. Now, he started when he was in his mid-20s. Uh, and the way he got into a museum was right through the front door. He bought tickets in cash. Don't put your credit card down. That's pretty much giving yourself away. Bought tickets in cash, walked in, had a genius eye for seeing all the cameras and sort of this innate ability to, also because he worked in it as a guard, to know the the, um, the how much a camera, security camera could see and how, how he was able to just skirt the outside. It was sort of amazing the way he could walk in and out of a museum and guard, and when you when they reviewed the security footage, he was never in it. He just sort of knew where every camera was. Wow. Watched where guards were. By the way, if you want to steal something, do it at lunch time. The main problem with security guards isn't that they start losing focus, it's that they get hungry. We're human. And almost every museum during the lunch hour lets half the guards go eat while the other half patrols and then they switch. So really, there's only half the number of guards on during lunchtime. This is something Brightweiser learned by working there. <laughs> now, you know, it's getting near lunchtime at LACMA right now. I'm going to, after this interview, I'm going to head on over to the Los Angeles County Museum. This pause is going to be everybody runs the music. <laughs> and so I mentioned he worked as a, so he had this, right? I mean, people just tend to not notice things that much, just in life in general. And then especially if you're wearing like headphones in a museum where you're sort of using that video audio guide, everyone is felt like he could often just determine that like a group of people would be looking at a painting. He could take another one. No one expects this. So when he took a painting off the wall, like I said, he would remove the um, frame. He would leave the frame somewhere in the museum. Often he called it his calling card, the empty frame. And he would usually steal smaller paintings, usually the size of a pizza box or smaller. He kept, he put the painting at the small of his back. He 
like to steal in cooler weather and you put a large jacket over the top and walk, never run. Don't, don't dash through a museum, that's suspicious. Walk out the door. For objects he also stole besides paintings. And his preference was for 17th and 16th century. That's the end of the Renaissance and the beginning of the Baroque, just beautiful oil color paintings, vibrant, filled with life out. You know, I mean, he had a great eye for art, by the way. Even even the cops that were chasing after him were like, hmm, that's a pretty good choice. <laughs> uh, he also stole many silver, gold, ivory, wood, mother of pearl, you name it, objects. And the way he would do that would be to steal them out of uh, display cases, which of course, if you think about a display case in your mind, it's like a basically a plexiglass cube or a smashed cube, a uh, flattened cube. And uh, the way that, you, that museums put things in, in and out of a, a display case is there's a little sliding door on the side. And almost always that door is securely locked with a modern lock. You do not have to pick that lock, ladies and gentlemen. So mm. what Breitweiser did, as I mentioned, all he had was a Swiss Army knife, a really good one with a sharp blade. And if you're picturing this, he would go to one of the corners of the security of the uh, display cases and using like a fine surgeon's cut, he would cut vertically, horizontally, all on all three axes of the case. And that would loosen the panels. These are usually made out of plexiglass sealed with silicon glue. He called it the silicon slice. He would slice that silicon in the panels of the display case would loosen just enough for him to snake his hand through and be able to remove an object, put it at the small of his back, cover it with his jacket, a little bit of a lump there, nobody notices. And then the way a display case works is those panels really want to be in their original position. You just push them back in. You don't have to add any other glue. They will just stay there in their original position. So the case looks untouched. You've never touched the lock and yet you've removed something, pushed the case back together. Often he would take a ballpoint pen after stealing his object, stick his hand through and rearrange the objects in the box. So to a passing guard, remember the rest of the guards are eating lunch. So to these guards, it looks untouched. There's no unnatural empty space. Wow. He would put it at small of his back, walk out with his girlfriend. Don't run, as I said, put it in the trunk of his car. Don't speed away. Not a good time to get caught speeding. You know, everybody's <laughs> rushing away. He would drive slowly, stop at yellow lights, you know, obey all the traffic laws. Not this crazy speeding away that you envision. That's the movies. This is reality. And he managed to do this more than 200 times for close to a decade. He averaged one art theft every 12 days. Woo. Wow. That's a lot of art thefts. That's like a hobby. He's a hobbyist. <laughs> From Entrepreneur Media, this is Launch Your Business, a show where you'll learn how to start your business, save time, and make better decisions. How much am I supposed to charge for this? I feel like I'm spending more money than I'm making. Why is this so confusing? Launching a business is challenging, but it doesn't have to be confusing. That is where I come in. I'm Terry Rice, staff writer and business development expert in residence here at Entrepreneur Media. Each week on the podcast, we'll give you tactical advice to scale your business while also providing you with the mindset to thrive even in the most challenging situations. A lot of entrepreneurs overwhelm themselves by trying to do too much too quickly. Leading experts will offer you concrete actions, tools to leverage, and guidance on making it all work without feeling burned out. Save time by learning from the wins and losses of others who have ventured off the beaten path to attain fulfillment on their own terms. To me, success as an entrepreneur is freedom. Join us each week and subscribe to Launch Your Business wherever you get your podcasts. You know, as you were saying that, I was thinking if I was in a museum and I saw someone just like calmly taking a painting down, I would assume they work there. 
And I would assume they were like a restoration person or something. Like I wouldn't start screaming. I mean, this is very good of you to say, because one of Breitweiser's great insights into stealing is that he would do things like that. So his mantra was something that an art thief would never do is precisely what an art thief should consider doing. For example, multiple times he would steal an object and often they would, you know, there's nothing he could do about it, especially if you're stealing a painting. Like there's a big blank spot on the wall. It's going to be noticed within, even if, even at the height of lunch, you, you know, three minutes you have. And sometimes if he couldn't get out of a museum, Breitweiser did what no art thief would ever do, which is he went, instead of trying to run out of a museum, he went to the museum cafe, ordered lunch and sat there with a stolen item at his back and slowly and just calmly ate lunch. The police could rush in. Who are the last people yeah. that are going to be suspicious of the, the the cute couple eating lunch calmly in the cafeteria? That's <laughs> definitely not the art thieves. And that is exactly why they did that. So it's kind of incredible. They would even stop and ask directions sometimes to guards on the way in just so like, well, obviously that couldn't be the people they, you know, yeah, yeah. And sometimes wave goodbye. And, oh, thanks. Thanks for the visit. You know, on the way out, we stole an object because that's not what an art thief would do. They even keep <laughs> on guided tours several times. And no art thief would ever do that because your face is known to a museum docent, you know. But this is exactly why I did it because the museum guide is going to be like, well, I had this group. Obviously, the thief isn't there because I was with him the whole time. And so he, it, it's a very imaginative set of crimes. And yeah. I speak warmly about Breitweiser, but he's really a bastard. I mean, uh, yeah, <laughs> that, I mean, he is still kind of a sociopath, like even though he, you know, I mean, even though he was doing it, he didn't actually make money off of it. So he's not like a criminal in that way. He still stole very valuable pieces of art that weren't his he still stole stuff. Right. right. And he exploited you say in this book, he really exploited this kind of like social contract that museum goers and museums have where it's like, we're going to give you kind of a lot of access to very, very valuable pieces of art with the sort of understanding that you're going to be respectful of it, right? So like when you go and see, you know, like a like a, a Van Gogh or even like a Da Vinci, like it's not behind like a barbed wire fence. Like you can go right up to it, right? Talk a little bit about that. Like he explored that. He knew that like it's pretty easy to have access to these things. So Breitweiser's French and he stole all of his th- thefts were in Europe. And for, for those of us who have been fortunate enough to spend time in Europe. There's tons of beautiful little museums in Europe, just like there's local mm-hmm. museums in the United States. But those museums in Europe do have Van Goghs, do have like invaluable, yeah. priceless works of art. And so Breitweiser mostly stole from smaller museums, which are really poorly secured. But sometimes he stole from, you know, some of the largest museums in Europe, not the Louvre, but like uh, the Brussels Museum of Art and History is just about the same size as the Louvre. So he he changed it up. But um you're right. So museum curators don't like to talk about this too much, but there is a weird sort of public trust in play with museums. I mean, we could talk about the problems of modern society from now to next September, but uh, museum public museums are one of the great societal goods. We've all agreed that we would like to see the most stunning works of art throughout history for a very small admission fee. And we've agreed as as a modern society that we're not going to throw acid on it. We're not going to stick a knife in it, but we could because just even a piece of glass takes away from a painting. But imagine putting bars or as you mentioned, barbed wire or a guard with a Uzi in the room. Like, you know, then then there would be no museums anymore. It would be like banks. And so 
he, Bart Reiser, was a cancer, basically, on the public good. He exploited this weird trust. And I'm really glad that there are not more people like Breitweiser, or else just museums wouldn't be able to survive. So so you mentioned the blank uh, frame. Being, he, he referred to that as his calling card. So I'm wondering, when did you know, authorities start to recognize that, hey, this is one person doing all this. And did he want that notoriety of being the anonymous guy who is ripping off all these museums? Okay, let's go for that. You know, so how do you catch an art thief? Uh, I, I did not know this before I started work on this book, but there are dedicated art police or uh, art and antiquities police in 20 different countries. The FBI has something called the art crime team, 20 full-time FBI agents that work on art and antiquities crime. France has a huge art crime team. Italy. That sounds like a good new CBS series, art crime. I know it kind of does. Yeah. Yeah. The art crime investigators. Yeah. Maybe on P maybe it's more of a PBS. It's more of a PBS yeah, yeah, yeah. crime show. I love it. And so what the, so I mentioned that it's not I mean, if you have a lot of chutzpah, it's not that hard to get a work at a museum. What is hard is to monetize this crime. Now, I'm, you know, to sell a work of art that's usually on the news, it's quite well known. It's like, oh, look, I have the Mona Lisa. Oh, great. You know, you, that is a hard thing to sell. And so what almost all of these police forces do is they don't they don't patrol museums. Those are what guards unarmed and often uh, senior citizens just having a sort of a hobby you know, they don't guard museums. What the police forces do is they look for criminals trying to monetize the works of art. They either sell it to crooked dealers, there's tons of them, crooked collectors, wow, they're everywhere, or they try and sneak the piece into the market, usually through a minor auction or sometimes a um, a like a, a, an eBay even um, auction. So the, 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 the cops look for these transfer points between the stolen art and the money, and that's when they make the arrest. Because Breitweiser was one of those literally less than one in a thousand real art thieves uh, collect uh, steal for the pleasure of it or the aesthetic enjoyment rather than for money. So the, the police are absolutely right. You know, 99.99% of people are trying to sell them. And that's how you get arrested. And that's the main reason why Breitweiser and his girlfriend were able to get away with it for so long is that they just hung it on the walls of their bedroom. And I just, I've seen home video. It is the most incredible thing you've ever seen in this room. So they had this beautiful, so he lived in his mother's house. You mentioned before that he was, a, sounded like a hobby. Breitweiser was basically a full-time art thief, which is a nice way of saying he was an unemployed freeloader. He lived in an <laughs> attic of his mother's house in this sort of drab city in France called Mulhouse, which is the reason why you haven't heard of Mulhouse is that's where they manufacture chemicals and build automobiles. It is not where the tourists go. So mm -hmm. funny that you put the most beautiful objects in a nondescript house in the in the ugly suburbs of an ugly city in France. And he put all these objects all over the walls and on his shelves and in his closet and even ran out of space and put some things under his bed. They had this beautiful four poster bed in the middle of this two room attic lair. And that's where he kept everything. And when I seen pictures of it, it's like not just 69 amazing Renaissance paintings, but also silver, gold, wood, everything is glowing. It is like living inside wow. of a treasure chest, truly amazing. And again, completely illegal. <laughs> and yet he he didn't see it that way, right? Like he he didn't he he justified why he did this to you. 
So that's my third book about criminals. And, yeah. um, you know, I admire all the heroes of the world. Do not get me wrong. The, the you know, the freedom fighters and the frontline uh, uh, nurses and soldiers and firefighters. But those guys are like distant stars to me, like too good. I can't even imagine the heroes of the world. So I really, I really like getting down in the mud with the criminals. And yeah, they, what intelligent, especially intelligent criminals love to do is come up with uh, excuses. And Brightweiser was great. <laughs> let me let me decide. I mean, I guess if you're going to steal this much art, you shouldn't be apologetic. But boy, this guy was just completely he <laughs> was he never felt guilty. He didn't apologize for anything. He truly felt that museums. Let me just quote him. This is not what I believe were prisons for art and that <laughs> He's he had freeing. this aesthetic attachment to these works. I mean, he is not. I love museums. I've been going to them since I since I was a kid. And I mean, I'm a journalist, so therefore I'm not a billionaire. I cannot afford any uh, work of my own. But Brightweiser isn't entirely wrong. I, you know, I just don't think that Leonardo da Vinci, when he was painting the Mona Lisa, was thinking, you know how this should be seen? This should be seen with 500 people jamming each other in the elbows, all <laughs> yeah. trying to get like a little look behind this dude's head. I, oh, I can see just the corner of the smile and pushing away and selfie sticks everywhere and people jam. That no, would not be. Not the way to see it. <laughs> Let me tell you how you want to see the Mona Lisa. First of all, you want to have a four-poster bed in there, and you want to put it on your wall, and you want to have a nice glass of wine, and then maybe a snack, and then run your fingers over the paint there just so you can feel the ridges and how Da Vinci himself, and then you want to go make love to your lover in front of it. That's the way you want to see. <laughs> that's the way, yeah, that's the way I've always seen it. Right, Wiser believed. So while he was completely batshit crazy, he wasn't absolutely wrong that museums <laughs> are the best way to see a work of art. Yeah. <laughs> but free the paintings. That was his. Free the paintings by putting them in your room, though. Yeah. That's, that's it's not like he shared them with the world. Uh... Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, so, yeah his... let's, let's leave logic to the side. Yeah. The logic is not. What he believes. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, how what what was his what was his downfall? I mean, he had a pretty good run. Um, did he slip up? Did he get sloppy? Did he want to get caught? What What do you think? So, like any good Icarus story, the closer you're going to get to the sun, the harder you're going to crash. And I don't think anybody was more daring, took more risks. I mean, we barely. Uh, in the book, I go through maybe 20 of his best, most incredible crimes. But when he finally did get caught and went to trial, and first in Switzerland, uh, they listed 50 different stealing methods that he used. So he really was this jack of all trades. But nobody can get away with everything forever. And after 201 thefts, he does get caught. And I will talk a little bit about this. Now, uh, one, one of the things I like about this book, The Art Thief, is not only are the thefts exciting, but the downfall is possibly more surprising. And what I also like about it is that there is a love story in the middle. I mentioned in passing, you know, we don't we have limited time. And Catherine, his girlfriend, that mm. was his accomplice. Now, everyone I've talked to that knew the couple said, well, this is the most toxic, unhealthy relationship of all, all time. But to a person, everyone said the same thing, which is almost an explanation here, which is, those guys were in love. They really loved each other. And so there's a love story, Bonnie huh. and crazy, but a love story shot through the middle of this that sort of gives it a little heart and soul. Now, I'm Catherine after oh, only like 90, 100, 150 thefts, got nervous. She's like, what the heck? You know, 
we're going to get caught. And so she got increasingly nervous and was like, we got to be more careful. She never said, let's stop, really. So we got to be more careful. And then she said she sort of stopped accompanying her boyfriend sometimes. So you would just she would just let him steal alone. And she was like, listen, I need you to wear surgical gloves. He was leaving his fingerprints all over the place. I need you to erase your footprints. If you stand on a chair, sometimes he stood on a chair to unhook things that were high on the wall. And uh, he steals this beautiful bugle from um, a museum, the Wagner Museum in uh, Switzerland. Comes home, tells his uh, girlfriend about how his great theft, and she's like, "Did you wear? Did you wear those surgical gloves?" And he's like, "Oh, honey, I needed to have perfect dexterity." And she gets mad. She's like, "I asked you not. I asked you to wear those gloves." Boyfriend, girlfriend, spat. I'm sure some of us might be familiar with that situation. And um, <laughs> so he says. Uh, all right, honey, I will make it right. I will go back to the museum and erase the prints. And it was one of the first times in his in his life that he had gone to a museum with not even the thought of stealing, but actually just covering up what he'd already stolen. And he had returned to the same museum, returned to the scene of crime, not necessarily a good idea. The person working there noticed him, called the police. So he was actually caught because he wanted to erase, because his girlfriend basically made him go back to erase his fingerprints and he went back uh, and said, that was, it's his girlfriend's fault. Right, uh, love <laughs> will always do you in. Uh, oh, wow. That's incredible. That's his humor. And then it gets crazier from there. Well, where is he now? Where's Stefan now? Okay, so we will uh, fast forward. I just want to tease your intelligent and curious listeners that's like the halfway point of the book is when he gets caught and then what happens to all the art what do they do with it what do you do with two billion dollars do you i will just say one thing about what happens to the art which is none of you people have, have read the book will guess what happens to it <laughs> where that's is a good cliffhanger now he is still under the control of the french penal system i think if you steal successfully 200 times you've got you got the bug. You are addicted to yeah. not just artwork, but stealing. So I, it's not giving away too much to say that uh, he served a lot of time in prison, got released, and immediately stole some more art. Now, let me just tell you, if you spend time in prison for stealing 201 times, uh, the police are going to be suspicious of any art. Yeah. So uh, his life falls apart in the most profound way possible. He gets caught again. His last trial that I attended was just in March, March of 2023. This is September, so that's like five months ago. And so this book really covers his whole life up until five months ago. Usually, you know, so it's not a piece yeah. of historical nonfiction. This is a true story and it's very current. And I just do want to stress one thing that might not have been clear that this isn't based on a true story. This isn't 99% of a true story. This has been fact-checked by two independent fact-checkers, thoroughly cross-checked. This is a true story. This really happened. Someone really did steal $2 billion worth of art, 201 thefts, and just put it in their bedroom. I wonder if he's stealing the prison art. That is unbelievable. I, I got to say, when we first learned about this book and, and the description of it, I assumed this happened in like 1802 or something like that. And I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> that happened pretty recently. Right. Right. It has that feel of like classic, like, you know, you know, exactly something that you read in the hist history books. That is one of the I mean, I talked to Breitweiser himself, born in 1971. So he's actually slightly younger than me. And uh, so it was I, I totally, Dan, agree with that assessment. It kept, I, I kept thinking, you know, this is like 
this is like some sort of like gentle. We should all be wearing top hats. <laughs> no, this is like today. Can can you tell us a little bit about just how was he hesitant to talk to you? Was he like wanted to brag? Like what what was that whole interaction like? Yeah, thank you. So I mentioned I, I read that little short article in a in a French newspaper about about, about Stefan Breitweiser, the the quantity of thefts and the style of thieving and the just putting it up in his bedroom. It was the wow uh, thing that we talked about. And then I was like, I need to know more. And uh, I called up a French journalist friend of mine and Agnès said to me, well, he doesn't talk to journalists. He's well known in France. He's not known in the United States because he doesn't speak English. I think if he spoke English, mm -hmm. there would already be three movies made about him. Fortunately, I speak French with a terrible accent, but fluent. And um, one of my secrets of getting someone's attention and i will share this with your extraordinarily fortunate listeners um <laughs> is to hand write mm. a letter now my, i have three children i don't think any of them know what an envelope and a stamp <laughs> right. is but uh, they used to have these things back in the 80s no a uh, pen paper stamp envelope i mean everybody texts or emails or snapchats or discords or whatever verb you want to use very few people actually send letters. And talking about an 18th century story does feel really old-fashioned. It's like something Shakespearean. But when you receive a handwritten letter these days, you're like, oh, oh, yeah, this is something. It jumps out. It's like unusual. It's like a thank you note if written in, you know, in ink. It's, it, it, it does jump out. So I sent a handwritten letter to Breitweiser. Uh, I actually, he had a ghost-written autobiography just available in French and German. So I actually didn't want to disturb him at his home that feels a little presumptuous. So I sent it through his publishing company, which is a lot of the times people reach me that way. And it took him eight months to respond, but I'm patient or inefficient or <laughs> ridiculous, whatever you want. I've been thinking patient is a nice way of saying I'm just freaking inefficient. Um, we exchanged handwritten letters for four years. Wow. <laughs> Had other things, other gigs on the side, but this project took 11 years. That's why I'm like so thrilled to talk about it. And thank you guys for having yeah. me. Yeah. Uh, we, we sent letters back and forth for four years. Eventually, he agreed to meet me for lunch. He was out of jail in near his, near his home in the Alsace region of France. That's northeastern France, where uh, Switzerland, Germany, and France sort of meet. And he said, I said, great, let's come to lunch. He says, no pen, no paper, no recorder, just to meet mm. for lunch. And apparently he was charmed with my bad French accent or something like that. But <laughs> yeah. we, we had a lunch. He liked you. He also likes Americans. He's one of, there's, there's a lot of, the French people have a bad reputation for not liking Americans, but I actually spent a lot of time in France and there is a, a, there's a bunch of French people that wish that they were as kind of loose and un, you know, untethered mm -hmm. to tradition as the Americans are. And Breitwarger is one of them, obviously not a rule yeah. follower. And uh, after the lunch, he agreed to allow me to interview him. And we ended up spending more than 40 hours together, including driving. This is possibly the strangest moments of my uh, almost 30 year uh, journalism career, which was we went to some museums from which he had stolen. And uh, he's banned from most museums in Europe, but he would put on he put on a pair of fake eyeglasses and just wore a baseball <laughs> hat low on his head, which is really all it takes to fool. A right. car. As I mentioned, these are FBI agencies are like retirees. You know, it's not that hard to fool a museum. <laughs> Groucho uh, Marx classes. Uh, yeah. You know, and I'm following him through museums. Fascinating tour because the guy really did. I mean, as crazy as you might think he has been you're not wrong. He is crazy. 
I was able, we built up enough trust over the 11 years I worked on this project that uh, he actually gave me signed written permission to see his psychology reports. And all of his psychologists called him like, you know, cancer on society, uh, yeah. you know, sociopath, uh, uh, you know, an obsessive thief. But they, all five that I got to see said the same thing, which is fascinating that, yeah, I admit that he truly loves these work of art. He really is an esthete. He really did not want money. He just wanted the work of art. So I found that to be beautiful. And walking through a museum, I could see that he would go through 99 paintings that he didn't like. And then when he saw one that he liked, he called it in French a coup de coeur, which means a hit, a blow to the heart. He would be like totally changed. I could watch his fingers vibrate and I could tell he wanted to steal it. And I'm actually sitting <laughs> there. I'm like, what am I going to do? <laughs> yeah. If the guy I'm writing about steals, am I going to call the police on my own, on the subject of my own book? And I'm happy to report that I did not have to face that moral quandary <laughs> for the I was worried about it the whole time. <laughs> wow. That is crazy. So what does he think about the book? Has he seen it, do you think? Read it? I sent Brightweiser an early copy of the book, and um, he said he said two things. Uh, I, I, I saw him, this was before even his trial that I went to. He said that uh, he found it very hard to read because his English isn't very mm -hmm. good. There will be a French translation, but from what he could understand, it seemed fair. <laughs> And uh, I just want to tell take. everyone that I did not write The Art Thief for The Art yeah. Thief. I did not. Right. Uh, I mean, I wanted it to be as accurate as possible, but it really, I wasn't trying to please mm -hmm. this criminal. Although I do have to thank Brightweiser because now that he's been caught, he gave me the most valuable thing he owns in the world now, which is no longer, I didn't, he didn't give me any of his paintings. <laughs> I was going to ask. He gave me his story, which is possibly the most valuable thing he owns. And I did not pay him for it, nor... Did he have any editorial control? So he, you know, he basically, he basically gave me the historian and let me run with it. And uh, so I appreciate wow. that yeah. from Brightweiser. That's pretty amazing. But I didn't write it to please him, and I didn't write it to exonerate him or to condemn him. I, I don't know about you guys, but especially a nonfiction book, I don't like a writer telling you what to believe. So I tried in this book to lay out all the facts, the good. The bad, the great, the horrible, the law-breaking, the love-making, and then let the readers decide. Like the readers to me are like the jury, and I, you close the book. I'm not telling you what to think, and then I wonder what you think. Like, is this guy a total bastard, or is this guy God, kind of impressive, or some combination thereof? And anyway, you can you can hit me up on my website. I'm Mike Finkel. It's MikeFinkel.com, MichaelFinkel.com. They all go to the same place. Send me a note and tell me what you think, and I respond everything. Yeah, I, I got one more question. One, one quick question, because we often when we we talk about a lot of financial criminals and they're usually, as you describe with him, really busy with their crimes. You know, they're not lazy about it. They're working really hard. And we we often wonder, man, if this person just put an ounce of that same energy into doing something legal or something good, you know, something good might have happened in the world. But does he have any skill that you think could have translated to anything other than stealing paintings? I'm glad you asked that. So after he was first caught, you know, there's been this tradition of like computer hackers turning into like security consultants for big companies. So after he was caught, his initial idea, and I actually think it was pretty good, was to become a security consultant for museums. Like for very little money, you put motion detectors in the uh, display cases, which eliminates the whole reaching in and the silicon slice. 
I mean, when he showed me how paintings were attached, attached to the walls in museums, you're like, really? It's like what you do in your house. It's like a painting on a nail. You just take, it's like, you just take it down. It costs like three cents to put like a lock there. So, you know, it's like and <laughs> security cameras are like, I got three of them on my house. They're not expensive. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Right. He was just going to be a consultant to uh to museums collectors of course most art crime does not take place in museums by the way it takes place in private homes that's, that's where they're even less guard you know you got a nice house but you got a 10 million a 20 50 million dollar Picasso that's more worth more than five of your houses like that's a pretty valuable thing um people steal from houses way more often than museums but this idea kind of a good one really <laughs> completely imploded because uh, right after he got out of jail and was thinking about doing this, he was also continuing to steal. Yeah, yeah. That's... <laughs> he was incorrigible. I almost, I'm not going to say respect it, but man, I almost, res I mean, like he's true, he was true to his, you know, true to his feathers. You know, he, he was like, he's an art thief, born and bred, and he's just going to steal art from now until, I, I mean, as soon as he's released from the penal system now, I'm. It's, I guess when you had that kind of obsession, it would be just nice if you could focus it on something that's legal, right? And then you'd be a, the most <laughs> successful person ever. Stamp collecting. I don't know. John, uh, you know, he, you've got that Rembrandt in your living room. Like, get a lock. <laughs> it's true. You know? I've been so cocky about it. I know it. you like to show off and you think it'll never happen to you, but just get You're a right. lock. I'm so cocky <laughs> about my Rembrandt. Uh, what a great story, Michael Thank you for joining the show. The book is called The Art Thief. And like I said, we'll, we'll link to it in the description uh, for uh, this podcast and for the story that accompanies this podcast. We really suggest you guys order a copy. We've only we've done justice here. We've done a little bit of justice, but we've only told about 10% of the story. So there's a lot more to, to, to find out about. So thank you. Oh, it's been great fun. I've had a really, really good time. My cheeks are uh, hurting from laughing so much. So <laughs> <laughs> great, man. That, that, that was awesome. Thanks, Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Dirty Money is a production of the Entrepreneur Media Podcast Network. It is produced by Dan Bova and John Small with music by Rich Bova. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Thank you for listening.